Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's a little bit of a bleak dystopian vision. I think that the social credit scores, the COVID passports, over time, European and American governments are going to realize that mobility is very threatening to, to state authority. Because if you don't like it, you can just leave. And they don't want people to leave. So my prediction is that 20 years from now, most Western countries will have a hukou system modeled off of China to control internal immigration. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Niklas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is August the 7th in 2023, and my guest is again Thibaut Selet. So Thibaut is the research director for the Adrenopoli Group. He has been appearing on the show before, talking about the thousand-plus-year-old history of special economic zones. He's a history buff. And we had a conversation previous couple of weeks ago about some new stuff that he's been finding about migration patterns, movements of people across the ages and times. And that's a question that I'm thinking about a lot it's in the governance, innovation space, startup cities, new jurisdictions. We're always wondering how do we get more people to switch, right? So the, the idea is by reducing switching costs, people make easier for people to move where they get a better product, a better city, better governance services. But that seems to be one of the hardest problems. If you see sort of migration patterns within Europe, which has relatively open borders, they're less than you think they are. Or also migration within the United States, labor mobility seems to be going down. But I don't yet have an answer as to why that is or how to change that. So I'm really excited to have Thibaut back to talk a bit about the history of migration flows and patterns. Thibaut, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. And uh, this is a very interesting topic to discuss. So I'm glad you brought me to talk about this in particular. So where do we start in terms of migration patterns, just to understand a bit better where we are now and what people did in the past? A good place to start might be to clarify a misconception that people had. And a narrative that I learned when I was in school was that until, say, the 18th, 19th century, the age of sail, or maybe the Industrial Revolution, peasants just grew up. They lived and died. They never traveled. They didn't know the world beyond 500 meters from where they lived. And the world was a totally sealed off places. Then European colonists came, and the world became interconnected. Is that a narrative that, that you were taught in, uh, in German schools? That kind of resonates with me, right? So there was pretty much nothing going on. People were just staying where they grew up. Well, once you start actually looking at the minutiae and the specifics of history, 
you realize that this is a totally ridiculous claim from a historical perspective. I remember reading a book. It's called A Time Traveler's Guide to Medieval England. It's an excellent book. And it makes a, f a few fascinating points. Number one is that the world was way less homogenous and was more diverse. So there would have been, uh, in Europe, there were entire language groups that have gone extinct. For example, uh, the whole region that goes all the way from modern-day Belgium down to Switzerland, kind of a thick strip of land, was a part of a kingdom called Burgundy. And they spoke a language called Burgundian that only is spoken by a few linguists today. It's a language that's a romance language that's a lot closer to German than French. Um, and it isn't really, it's a total evolutionary dead end. It's not a, a dialect of German. It's not a dialect of French. It's its own sort of block. And after the kingdom of Burgundy collapsed circa 1480, the language disappeared. And the point that's made in a time traveler's guide to medieval England is that if you measure travel in terms of miles traveled per person, obviously that's gone up with planes. But if you measure travel in terms of percentage of one's life spent on the road, it's actually gone way down over the last few hundred years. And people spent much more time on pilgrimages. There was a booming tourism industry of religious pilgrimage in the Middle Age. People spent way more time traveling. And because the world was so much more diverse, they would have been exposed to other cultures, other languages. And in fact, the distances some of these people traveled is truly staggering. That is kind of mind-blowing and also a very good sort of distinction to make. Miles traveled versus time of your life spent traveling. How come? Because that's kind of hard to imagine. What were some examples of a typical life of someone and what got them to travel that much? Sure. Well, the overwhelming majority of travel was commercial in nature. A lot of it was simply people crafting a specific good and taking that to markets. Then the second largest category would be religious pilgrimage, where you go to see holy shrines. You can't forget that in the entire Arabic and Middle Eastern uh, Islamic world, all Muslims are religiously required to go to Mecca. And the, church, the Catholic Church had many similar requirements, but it was more localized. Um, and thirdly, of course, there was military adventurism. And you have to also remember that The soldiers constitute only a very small percentage of uh, uh, military uh, travel. There's a lot of suppliers, a lot of uh, prostitutes, a lot of slaves, a lot of peasants and opportunists. And I have a few very fascinating examples of travel at a time. So in the 1620s, this is, this is kind of a mind-blowing example of, of how, how long distances travel. So think about where Iceland is on the map and where you think of as the Ottoman Empire on a map. So it turns out that the Ottoman Empire had some naval outposts in Morocco. And the Ottomans, uh, one of the goals of a sultan called Selim the Grim, who was sultan in the 20 years or so after Christopher Columbus discovered the New World, is that he said, well, I'm going to launch an Ottoman colonization effort into the Americas to rival the Portuguese and the Spanish. And it never happened. But as part of this, they established all of these military bases, Turkish bases in Morocco. And in 1627, a hundred years or so after these bases were established, the Ottomans launched a naval invasion of Iceland. Yes, there were Turkish military troops in Iceland. And the Protestant priest from Iceland called Olafur Egilsson, who was taken in this 1527 raid, 
And as part of this raid, he was enslaved and he actually was forced to travel all across the Ottoman Empire as a slave. At first, he was rowing on a boat. He ended up being a guy who would like read bedtime stories to some sultan because he knew how to read and write. Uh, later on, he became a guy who would sign letters. And eventually, he made enough money to purchase his own freedom. He made it back to Iceland. He wrote an autobiography in the late 1630s, and he died a couple years later. Um, but that's an example of somebody who a lot of crossovers that would be counterintuitive. Or looking at a much earlier crossover, we know that the Chinese empire and the Roman empires had extensive trade. And it gets to the point where um, in, in, in a Roman cemetery dating from about the third century AD in London, um, several corpses were exhumed. And uh, an archaeologists discovered that after doing some DNA testing, that two of the corpses were definitely Chinese. We're not quite sure how in the world they ended up in a Roman cemetery in third century AD London. And conversely, one of the largest Byzantine coin caches that has ever been found, uh, so this is a bit set later, I think it's sixth or seventh century AD, um, was found in Nara, Japan. So probably in both cases uh, relating to mercantile connections, um, but it just goes to show that Eurasia has been completely connected for just about forever. Yeah, the examples that you gave make sense, right? So commerce, the Silk Road, merchants have to travel a lot, military and like for conquests and raids. But wasn't it the case that most of the population was living in agriculture and on farms and farming, right? So that's kind of an image that I associate with a very kind of sedentary lifestyle and kind of not leaving the farm or goes to many places. That is true. But most people today work in cubicles. And case in point, uh, I live in Switzerland and I have a uh, relative who's visiting me right now. He's 19 years old and he grew up in, I I'd say, a middle class to maybe even upper middle class American family. And yet it's the first time he's ever left uh, the U.S. at the age of 19. So, you know, most of the population, and I'm sure that the percentage of people that's traveled has increased, uh, a, a, but I don't think it's increased by like, 80%. I think it may have increased by like 20%. You know, it's, uh, it's not nearly as huge of an increase as people imagine. So the agricultural story, does that play a role at all? Is, is there some kind of a story where um, there were the day laborers that were more mobile and, and going from farm to farm? Is that part of the story? Yes and no. Um, a key thing to understand about the, the, the medieval economy is that Although the economy is predominantly agricultural, there's a huge amount of traveling that's involved with agriculture, either directly or indirectly. Number one is that bringing crops to market, there's no trucks. Transporting crops is extremely expensive. Usually the peasants carry their own crops to a market town. And these are like kind of towns that are maybe along the side of a river. Think about a town like, uh, like Frankfurt in Germany or. Uh, or Paris, France would be a radical example, but also something like uh, Rouen or Evreux that were alongside uh, Leur and the Loire in France. Um, and from these market towns, the crops are then exported elsewhere by merchants, sometimes in galleys and bulk shipments. Bulk shipping was extremely effective. Um, we know that there was a huge bulk shipping industry from Egypt to Rome during the Roman Empire and during the Middle Ages from Sicily, elsewhere in Italy. But also, you have to remember that when you're farming, you need a huge amount of capital goods and capital equipment. 
So not only are you spending a lot of time as a farmer physically, usually taking your grains to market towns. And by the way, the roads are bad, so they're not using carts. Uh, what they're doing is that they're taking a train of cows, depending on the region, horses, although it would be more expensive, donkeys or camels. They're taking, you know, 20 of them and they're just strapping on bags because they can walk across the muddy roads. So they're spending many days going to and forth from these market towns, and you're bringing back from these market towns iron uh, implements, metallurgy. Uh, depending on where you live, you might need salt and spices to help preserve your food. And the salt, the spices, the metallurgical instruments, they can be exported and imported from extremely far. Um, for example, there's evidence that Damascus in Syria was a large steel production center. They famously made Damascus steel weapons, but they also made all sorts of tool implements. And Damascus steel tool implements have been found for agricultural purposes as far as Kenya and Spain. So you're, you're, you're connected to a very globalized economy. I'm curious, how did the world look in probably until like the 19th uh, and 18th and 19th century with the arrival of borders and nation states? How did the world look before in terms of openness to travel, borders, movement, permits that you needed? Was it a more open world? Was it a more closed world? Was it kind of a mix? Sure. So let me pull up a few notes that I have. Um, uh, recently, what I've been really looking at a lot is the history of IDs and specifically passports. And a lot of this is tied to the emergence of the nation state as opposed to, you know, the, the warlord empire. So The first thing to understand is that for the most part, borders in the medieval and ancient worlds, and even late into the early modern era, although things were kind of solidifying, were extremely permeable. There were no passports, right? And there were no fixed borders. Borders was roughly this area. And to the extent that there were clear borders, occasionally as an accident of geography, there were clear borders. Examples famously include walls such as Adrian's Wall in Scotland limiting the Roman Empire or the Great Wall of China. Sometimes borders were set by rivers, like the Rhine River. But in the absence of rivers or the physical construction of a wall, borders tended to be very fuzzy. So because there were no borders, you don't really need passports. There is today a document called the Randian Guo Suo, R-A-N-D-I-A-N space G-U-O-S-U-O in Pinyin in the Xinjiang Museum in China. And it's the oldest known document that may or may not be a passport. It dates from 732 AD. And what this document is, is that it gives permission to a uh, merchant from somewhere in Central Asia outside of China to cross the Great Wall of China, because it's one of those rare places that has a border. And historians have pointed out that it's, uh, it's kind of like an ancestor to a passport, evolutionarily speaking. And what's fascinating is that Until about 1898 in the Qing dynasty, the Chinese government continuously issued these documents to Central Asian merchants, pretty much unchanged for close to a thousand years uh, to cross these, uh, these, uh, these borders. So that's the creation of the first passport. It would then get exported elsewhere over time. Um, when the Mongol Empire took over, depending on, on whether you use Chinese or Mongol spelling, they issued a, a document called a Paiza or a Gereg, G-R-E-G, or P-A-I-Z-A. What these were 
was that it's not a passport that's universal for travelers. It's, it's not at all how it worked. What it was is that all of the high-level government officials would get this. And if anyone was killed or robbed or, or in any way harmed who had one of these Paiser gigs, usually they're like a little metal badge that you wear, then the entire Mongol Empire would come to kill you and everyone else that you knew. Um, so they would go as far if a single person carrying a paisa got harmed as uh, destroying entire cities and civilizations out of revenge. In fact, it's because uh, the paisa holders of Persia were killed by the Persians that the Mongol Empire invaded, conquered, and destroyed Persian civilization. So they took it really seriously. But it's not like everybody would have access to paisa. Case in point, Marco Polo was able to travel across the Mongol Empire because he had access to Paisa. And he was asked by the Venetians what his most prized treasure he brought back from the Orient. And he pulled, you know, he has all of these gold and gems, but he, he doesn't point to that. He points to a little bronze thing. And the Italians think he's a moron for having this little bronze token. Um, why? Because it's, uh, it's just worthless metal. But it turns out that it allowed him to travel. And under the reign of Kublai Khan, there was a saying that a naked virgin covered in gold jewelry could travel from one end of the Mongol Empire to the other end with a paisa and could remain naked, uh, remain a virgin, and remain covered in gold. So the Europeans got this concept. Once again, it's closer to what we would think of as diplomatic immunity. Um, and they got this concept of, of, a, of a primitive passport from the Mongols. And they decided to start implementing it. So in 1414, King Henry V of England uh, issued his own sort of Paisa-like document to protect his diplomats going to France. And by 1540, England had a passport office. But once again, the passport only for officials. In 1548, the Holy Roman Empire also starts issuing these Paisas and documents. And 100 years later, after the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, all of the European countries agree to recognize each other's paisas and garricks. Now, if you want to know how in the world it went from like a diplomatic immunity thing to a thing that everybody needs, well, there's two major changes that happen. Number one is the invention of the railroad, where a lot of the trains enable cheap labor, enable all of these sort of unskilled immigrants from crossing borders. So slowly, countries require you to have a passport to get on a train but don't require a passport for other modes of travel. And they start also around this time issuing passports more freely. So it's more to prove that you're rich enough to like pay for your stay and not become an illegal immigrant. And uh, I believe this starts under Napoleon III in France. Uh, Bismarck does this. And finally, during World War I, everybody starts requiring passports because all of the countries don't trust each other and they want to track people. However, photo ID will have to wait even longer. The passports just have a written description of your person. And several spies get caught during the two world wars because they're just written description. So uh, at the 1876 World Fair in Philadelphia, 1876 World Fair, as kind of a novelty for the tickets, uh, you'd get a photo ID to show this new high-tech technology. And by the end of World War II, uh, not only do you need a passport to travel to almost every country, but you need photo ID. So it went from, to summarize, China crossing the Silk Wall to diplomatic immunity for the Mongol Empire to diplomatic immunity for all the European states to uh, a tool to prevent mass immigration of cheap labor on rails to uh, one of those paranoid measures that governments implement during war that just seems to stick. Yeah. And 
let me give you kind of a bit my thinking how history then unfolded afterwards and please edit me and correct me where I'm wrong or have a misperception. So the time you described was more kaleidoscopic. It was the beginning of certain new things like passports. There was higher kind of labor mobility. There were all sorts of other reasons to travel from military to commercial. And then with the industrial age, you kind of had an increasing urbanization. You had the worker that was going to a factory, the factory um, man. And then in the 19th century with Bismarck, you had the welfare states, you had nation, the rising nation state that got more and more powerful. And that increasingly with the first world war was carving up the worlds and saying, okay, this is your defined border and there's a passport for your people to go from here to there. And we make all these arrangements. So in a way, starting really with world war one, the world kind of got more closed and people's life kind of got more bundled, right? Because there were these disincentives to move and the incentives were all increasingly set to stay where you are and work and have your insurance, your life, everything bundled into one place. And it's a bit still the model that we're, that we're at right now. And even as late as the 1970s, Europeans could freely travel to the U.S. without a passport at all. And I know this not because I've done some historical research, but because several of my family members uh, immigrated from Germany with no passports, just showed up in the 60s, I think late 60s, early 70s, the 60s. maybe wow. yeah, mid 60s, showed up via boat, no passport control, and were just able to start living in the U.S., no visa or anything. Don't know how legal it was, but at the very least, it shows that uh, enforcement was really lax. And you just look at very recent events like 9-11, where the uh, U.S. has removed the uh, visa-free access, sorry, the, the passport-free access for Canadians. Um, you look at all of this anti-money laundering legislation. It, it seems like the trend is actually towards the world becoming more closed rather than more open, let alone COVID, totally unprecedented. So history is just going towards, a, a, I think, the long-term direction. And it's a little bit of a bleak dystopian vision. But China has something called the hukou system, which is internal passports. North Korea has this. A few countries have this, where not only do you need a passport and permission from the government to travel outside of China if you're Chinese, but even to go from, say, Shanghai to Shenzhen, you need permission and to move there. And I think that the social credit scores, the COVID passports, over time, European and American governments are going to realize that mobility is very threatening to, to state authority, because if you don't like it, you can just leave. And they don't want people to leave. They don't want people to take advantage of higher taxes. So I think that, that once again, my prediction is that 20 years from now, most Western countries will have a hukou system modeled off of China to control internal immigration. Yeah, which is kind of shocking and very dystopian when you think about it. The world is actually becoming not more open, but more closed because people associate or think, oh, we can travel now so much. But what's interesting about that is we travel for leisure. And I would assume traveling for leisure is a more recent thing or something that was originally something more for the nobility. So it's less less so for economic reasons or anything like that, right? So, which kind of means, all right, so travel still means even more tied to one place because you don't have these strong gravitational pulls 
to really go somewhere else and learn, learn the culture, learn the language, spend the amount of time there or work there or something like that, right? So, Yes, and although you have to remember that travel for leisure was very significant in the Middle Ages. Um, I mean, and it mm -hmm. wasn't only for the rich. There are people who had nothing, who, who, were, who were on the edge of homelessness, basically, you know, who would travel very long distances for leisure um, once again, it was usually framed in the form of pilgrimages, but uh, the, the, there is a hilarious um, story from the Crusades that illustrates this. And the idea is that a lot of the, the pilgrims would get absolved of their sins once they made it to Jerusalem. So on their way back, they had to avoid sinning. But on the way to Jerusalem, there were several towns like right outside of Jerusalem that had all of these brothels and taverns and casinos that would say, you know, it's your last chance before you get absolved of your sins to really you know, gamble and go to the brothel and all of this. <laughs> so that became a whole industry for, for uh, several port cities like uh, Acre and Jaffa and so forth. I'm interested in reducing the barriers to switching, right? Sort of that's the whole premise behind what you and I care a lot about governance innovation, that you want to give people a better product you know, a better place where they can live, work, earn a higher income. So, but people can only use it if the switching costs are kind of reasonably low. What can we do to reduce these switching costs? Well, let's not talk about what we can do to reduce the switching costs, but what I'd like to talk about are the evolutionary conditions that would lead to governments reducing the switching costs. And I think, frankly, um, this is a, maybe a very pessimistic, seemingly pessimistic take, but chaos is it going to be good in the long term. The more chaotic the world becomes, the less, the harder it will be for anyone to control anything. So here are a few scenarios where I could see switching costs uh, becoming much easier. One is if there's a serious climate change catastrophe that causes a serious, not a recession, but like a long term 20, 30 years of economic desperation, maybe hyperinflation combined with extreme climate disasters, um, that would destabilize governments to the point where if you're looking at COVID, there's kind of a, a, a monopoly uh, uh, where governments are kind of colluding to all close the borders. There, there'd be an incentive to cheat from collusion systems. And governments will say, hey, my economy is so bad. I'm so desperate. I'll open the borders a little bit. And uh, let in more immigration. So that's one example. Another circumstance that you find is that territorially larger governments tend to be more restrictive of immigration. Going back to antiquity, the only governments that had clear borders for centuries were China with uh, the Great Wall of China and the Roman Empire with Adrian's Wall and all of the Limitani forts. During the Middle Ages, once these states broke down and China has, you know, the Northern Song and the Southern Song, they're no longer building the Great Wall. Once you have, you know, the kingdom of the Franks and the Lombards, once again, borders become open. And historically, even to this day, um, city-states tend to have almost complete open borders. City-states never restrict immigration. So, uh, for example, Liechtenstein, although it's very hard to abstain Liechtenstein citizenship, they'll basically let you stay there as long as you want with no border controls. Same for Dubai, probably one of the countries that's the most one citizenship is hard to obtain. Dubai and Singapore, for that matter. But in terms of working there and traveling and getting a work visa and living, they'll let you go as long as possible. And what's fascinating is that this trend with city-states goes back centuries. 
the period that probably had the peak open borders and the and the peak mobility and the least barriers, I'd say is European history in European history. Maybe it's a little bit different for the Middle East um, and for Asia, but in Europe, it's the time period from about a thousand AD when the Holy Roman Empire is really decentralized and broken until about 1500, that 500 year period where Europe is the most fragmented into city states. That point, there's complete open borders. Uh, in fact, most of the toll bridges and stuff even disappear. So in terms of moving forward, there are many special economic zones that allow that issue their own visas, like the Hainan pilot free zone in China issues tourism visas. Uh, I've actually traveled to several zones. I've traveled to China visa free. Um, I went to Shanghai visa free through one of their zones. Um, so special economic zones, city state proliferation. And uh, environmental collapse and recession, I think, will all make uh, travel easier. I'm not really sure if you want these things for other reasons. I'm just looking purely at the immigration question. Yeah, that was, which is kind of the loop back to the topic that we care about. I mean, the city-states or smaller jurisdictions or new jurisdictions part, we, we may want more of at least to diversify and have more options available if these other more undesirable things that happen, happen. So we have places to go to. Anything else in that context that we haven't talked about sort of to understand this trend of how people move? Well, maybe I could end with, I think, is a very positive story about the triumph of the human spirit in the face of extreme oppression. This is the fate of the northern Sephardic Jews of Europe. So the Sephardic Jews um, had a very uncomfortable position in Europe because they had a foot in the Islamic world and they had all of these trade connections. And the Christians saw them as Muslim sympathizers um, because during, for example, the, the Islamic invasion of Spain, uh, many of the Jews to their own misfortune helped open the city gates and help the, the Muslim conquest. But at the same time, they were also persecuted by various Islamic groups. Um, Islam at first was very tolerant of Jews and later Islam got more repressive over time. So they had to travel and they had to get across borders which led to the famous uh, Sephardic scholar Maimonides, who is writing, by the way, Maimonides, if you're interested in kind of seeing a proto-libertarian scholar, is one of the most brilliant libertarian writers of, of the Middle Ages. And he advises that Jews need to keep one third of their wealth in movable wealth in case if they have to get up and move. So what's fascinating about the Jews is that um, a lot of the initial restrictions on travel and the very first laws that prevented travel were actually targeted towards Jews, where people would say, you know, open borders for everyone except for the Jews. And the other problem is that not only were the Jews restricted in terms of where they could go, but they were also restricted in terms of they had to go because there were frequent pogroms and frequent discrimination. So you'd think that the Jews would be extremely economically unsuccessful. But what they were able to do was, for example, there was a, a plot where King Philip V of France, in, I don't know, the early 1300s, um, there was a wave of plague. And he is called the leper's plot. But what he did is that he blamed the plague on Jews throwing corpses in the well. And he said that the Jews were in pay of the Muslims of Spain, the remaining Muslims, to make France collapse. Um, it later on turned out that it may have been a, an early example of a false flag attack where some wells were poisoned, but it seems like they actually may have been poisoned by King Philip's own men. And he knew that Jews had a lot of money and he really just wanted an excuse to, to take what they had. And 
he, he thought they were all going to get killed because once again, neighboring Spain didn't want them. Uh, neighboring most of the Italian city-states, especially the ones that bordered France, like Genoa, had all of these anti-Jewish laws. And Germany was going through its own wave of pogroms. Britain, under the reign of Richard the Lionheart, had just in the 1280s, just 40 years prior, had had these really horrible slaughters. So what the Jews were able to do is that they were able to negotiate with the Venetians, the creation of a ghetto. And they said, hey, we'll create this tax-exempt zone and we'll kind of be confined to this ghetto, but we'll be protected here and we'll have religious freedom and we'll be exempt from most taxation. And the Venetians agreed and they created a sort of Jewish special economic zone and they took in all the Jews and the Venetians got the last laugh because it turned out that they got all of the most brilliant people in Europe. Uh, at this is the time where Jews were starting to become doctors and lawyers. They ended up getting way richer in Venice and once again being able to spread. It, it became such an economic boom that about 80 years later, uh, the French forgave the Jews, pardoned the Jews, and offered them tax breaks to, to try to get them back to bolster their economy. So it really goes to show that whatever discrimination you're going to face, it's not going to be as bad as the plight of the medieval Jews. And if they were able to, you know, triumph and pull through and find better jurisdictions in those circumstances than anyone can. I love it. There's always hope, even in the darkest times. And I love it when I talk to you, Tibo, that there are so many things that I see happening now that if you put them in perspective historically and see the parallels, it just makes a whole lot more sense. And yeah, it leads you to see that there's always hope. There's always a way out. There's always something to learn from the past and how things happened. And I think this is very encouraging for the journey that you and I are on. So thank you so much, Tibo, for coming on the show again. Anything else, any shout out that you want to give, anything you want to direct listeners towards that they can engage with? Uh, no, just add me on LinkedIn. I'm, uh, I'm currently writing and that's it for now. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Bye, Tibo. Goodbye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.